Hello, and welcome to Reed Scholars Live. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Fleming, the current president of Reed Scholars. Today, I am joined by Dr. Dion Mills-Silk, who is a practicing OBGYN in Gilbert, Arizona. She completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Arizona, her MD at Ross University School of Medicine, and her residency training at Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In addition to being a wife and mother and physician, she is an ardent champion for women's health and health, and health equity. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on Reed Scholars Live. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So how are things where you are in Arizona? How, how has this pandemic been treating you? Well, it's been a, it's been a busy, tumultuous <laughs> um, time in Arizona. Um, the pandemic has definitely illuminated a lot of issues that I and other uh, equity advocates have been um, screaming about for a few years now. Um, and so it's been almost like a second full-time job in collaborating with other physicians and educators to um, make sure that science is respected and at the forefront of COVID management here in Arizona. And um, that's been a very um, frustrating path, but also it's been rewarding because I've gotten to meet a lot of um, really caring, committed educators um, and school board members and physicians that have just stepped up to advocate for the health and safety of everybody. So it's kind of a mixed, mixed uh, picture, but um, things are hopefully getting better as far as case goes here in Arizona, but the problem is we're not really having a good handle on how we are tracking our data. So it's very hard to actually know if we're getting better or not. Um, so we're still trying to encourage everybody to just be very cautious and be very diligent and disciplined here in Arizona. That makes a lot of sense, it makes a lot of sense. So um, there's a, several things I want us to talk about today, but just so everybody kind of knows how you became such a health equity advocate, um, take us back a little bit. Tell us what interested you in medicine. Why did you choose OBGYN? Um, and, and what took you back to Arizona and why did you decide to practice there? Well, I, my family brought me and my, I'm the oldest of five. My parents brought me and my, my siblings to Arizona from Trinidad um, back when I was about 10. Um, a couple of my dad's younger siblings had moved up to the States um, and it was the typical immigration story, you know, parents who had good jobs, but had five kids who wanted to do big things. And they knew that opportunity was uh, more at more available here in America. So they made that trip. Um, so I had already spent some time in Arizona and then I went away for school and I went away for um, uh, residency and I decided to come back to Arizona because I did have a lot of family here and I had already had two kids at that point and thought that it would be better to have them around family, which makes sense. Um, as far as the field, I always knew, I, I told my parents when I was three that I was gonna be a doctor. Um, I think I chose OBGYN. It, it makes sense why I chose it, I think, because when I was in college, I ended up doing a lot of women's health advocacy stuff. I don't know why I always felt that, maybe because, you know, my dad's the oldest of 10 and we have huge families and a lot of women, a lot of really um, strong, amazing women in my family on both my mom and my dad's side. My mom's one of six. Um, and um, when I was in college, 
I worked at a women's health shelter, uh, a battered women's shelter in Tucson, because I went to University of Arizona. And there I was able to work as a job readiness specialist and a um, transitional housing manager for them. Um, and really spent a lot of time with um, talking to them and counseling and get, helping them with resources. And even then I saw just equity issues. So luckily one of my degrees in college was Spanish and I always felt that we should not, people's ability to get help or our ability to help people should not be affected by what languages we speak. We can't make the fact that we can't speak their language an excuse to shortchange them on things that they should have gotten otherwise. So it, even in college, when I was working for the, the, the Tucson Centers for Women and Children is what it's called, I, I pushed for them to let me translate all of their, I mean, they were handing out documents and pamphlets and helpful tips to women in English and the women spoke no English. Like yeah. it was almost like, oh, I did my duty by <laughs> handing it to you, but when is she ever, how is she ever gonna read it? Right. How is she ever gonna internalize it? Right. right. She's hiding out at a shelter, so as long as she can go tell her friends to read it for her. Um, so I spent a lot of time just translating lots of their documents and pushing for them to, really um, actually meet these people where they are. Um, those things just kind of, I don't know, came naturally to me. Um, I'm sure, you know, my, my, my mom having a very big influence on that, I'm sure, because seeing how much she always cared for other people and my, my dad, I, I know there's a familial influence. I just, you know, it's some, something organic. You don't really know where, where that comes from. You just know that that's something you're always, you always have a radar out for, oh, I smell, <laughs> I smell inequity somewhere, uh, kind of a radar. It was just kind of uh, annoying to have that radar too. But, And then when I did a program at the end of college at, at Columbia, where we all got to kind of feel out different specialties, I remember, you know, shadowing this guy who, you know, went from the OR to like the main OR to the delivery room to doing a C-section to the clinic. And I was like, you get to do all this stuff in one day? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, sign me up. Um, so that's why I did obstetrics and it melded perfectly being a woman's health advocate, being a surgeon, which I always wanted to, to be in a surgical field, being able to follow patients longer than just, oh, their gallbladder is out, you know, is bad. Let's fix it and maybe never see them again. No offense to general surgery. Right. Um, but being able to really have a relationship with women and being in the perfect position to empower them through education, through educating themselves about themselves, um, which is basically what you do at the Better Women's Shelter too. So it was like, this field is the perfect opportunity to really harness, uh, you know, combine all of those passions. Um, so that's where uh, obstetrics and gynecology came in. Um, but yeah, equity and education um, has kind of developed from that as uh, the last three years, this is the third year, is about to start the school term. Um, I've been on the equity advisory board for the Chandler Unified School District here in Arizona. That's the district that my kids go to school. And I'd always been, that was another mini obsession of mine, coming from Trinidad and going to America and being the only black person in all of my classes because I was always in honors classes, um, which really isn't a statement about my brilliance really, or about the um, defect in the black community at our school. It was a statement on who was advocating for gifted black people 
um, and not a whole lot were. So that's just, you know, making sure that's clear. It wasn't anything necessarily special about me. I just had a foundation from being in Trinidad and being around other people who look like me who are all just doing their thing um, without that stigma to come up and expect to be in all of the honors classes because that's what we do. Um, but learning about slavery and learning about things and seeing how incredibly skewed and absolutely ridiculously whitewashed all the history books were, it kept that on my radar too. And when my kids were starting to go to school, I knew I was going to be breathing down the necks of everybody in schools. I mean, asking people to let me see what history books my kids are going to be, you know, doing um, and looking through it and making sure I don't have any objections to how skewed it is. Um, and so when I found out about the equity advisory board that was being established, I jumped on that, uh, applied to it, and have been working with an amazing woman named Dr. Uh, Adama Salu, who's actually from Sierra Leone, who's been really helping Chandler District with finding itself and, and finding the need for equity in education. Um, so that kind of came out of that. So equity, <laughs> equity in healthcare, equity in education, they, it's all related. It's literally... <laughs> There is no separation. Um, we are all lifelong students, right? So we needed equity in our education and you know, we didn't always get it in our training. Um, and so fighting for it at the base level of elementary school, I think ended up just being a natural progression. Makes a lot of sense. And um, you know, we, we already know this, we have so many things in common. Uh, and I remember having that same sentiment going into OBGYN and that I was like I can do all the things and I you know that busybody spirit of us is like mm -hmm. it keeps you from getting bored um, you really can affect change in multiple ways in a woman's life and it gives you that avenue for advocacy as well um, which is still you know such a such a needed um, area of advocacy right now and speaking to the education component um, I mean we could we'll have to come back and revisit that on a whole separate podcast I'd recently had a, a conversation with another um, woman with several kids and talking about this, exactly that, like being very involved in how your kids are educated um, and not taking for granted what the content of the curriculum is and if that is mm -hmm. true and if it's applicable for your kids and, and how do we take that back and have ownership of that and advocate for um, you know, our kids and, and the educational system. So, um, but that being said, um, one of the one of the things that you know we've gotten a lot of pushback recently as physicians is being in this advocacy role, right? So there's been some sentiment about stay in your lane, treat the patient, stay in the hospital, stay in the clinic, um, don't get in these outside conversations. Uh, we're often you know cautioned against having political conversations at work. Uh, we have that push pull of where our lane is, and I think. For me, you do a great job of using your platform as a physician, especially on social media, of having these tough conversations, right? And having these diverse conversations with people. I mean, I think one of the things social media, for better or for worse, gives us access to having conversations in a broader context with, pe with people that we probably wouldn't have those same conversations with face-to-face. -face. Um, and so I thought maybe today we would take a little bit of departure from what I normally do in, the, in these podcast settings um, and talk about some more current events because so many things have happened um, in the past few weeks that will impact um, health equity over the long run. So um, the first, I thought I'd kind of start with, we had two um, national conventions in the past two weeks. We had the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention. 
Um, and, I, and I've watched a good bit of both of them. And watching them, though, you would almost think that we lived in two different countries, right? Like the, the representation of what was going on in the world is, is very different. Um, we also had, you know, the, the nomination of Kamala Harris for vice president, which is huge and has huge implications um, on the context of the history of the country and, and where we're going, going forward. So um, I thought maybe I would just start there and ask you kind of, you know, how is the conversations that you've been having on social media have been influenced by those, those two conventions over the past couple of weeks? You know, um, we do live in two different countries. It's not that it feels that way, it's because that's what it is. And um, one thing I've realized, or one thing I, I strongly believe is that to tell anybody to not be quote unquote political means that you are signaling to me that you don't even understand how any of this works. <laughs> Everything is political. Everything is political because it's people in office making policies that affect your life. If you have a patient who needs a certain medication and they can't get it, there's poli politics just came in your lap. So how are you telling me that you can't talk? I don't have the right to talk about politics when politics affects me. I have people who sometimes say, you know, don't get so stressed out. Just, you know, turn off the news, take a little break. And I'm like, at which facet of my life is me turning it off ever going to help me when if I don't pay attention to what's happening with drug policies or any of those policies, I have to pay attention when I get to the office. I'm a black woman. Do I not need to pay attention to the increase in hate crimes since, you know, 2016? I have kids. Do I not need to pay attention to what Betsy DeVos is doing with, with public education? I have, you know, I mean, come on. Like, so... To think that we um, cannot and should not talk about politics uh, is, a, is a statement that really um, has always irked me because it's just, it's plain ignorant and dismissive of the whole way that this country works. Um, as far as conversations over the last couple weeks, you know, like you said, social media has been an interesting place, an interesting world. Um, through it, I have really been able to express things that to a wider range of people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. Um, but I also have seen that, you know, you do see a little ugliness, but you also see when you get private messages of people who say, I didn't actually even think about this that way, or I didn't actually know that was happening. Um, and you, you're able to push for people to just educate themselves, knowing that hopefully most people who actually look like open up a book and read about what's happening will actually change a lot of their views if they have the baseline of humanity and empathy within them that sometimes it's just that people aren't they're willfully ignorant about things they're just choosing to kind of put their head in the sand um i watched a lot of the democrat convention and to, for full disclosure i did not watch any of the republican convention this year because self-care needed to be mental health was a big thing last week um i i do the research i do you know i trust me i watch news way more than i should i read books that probably aren't you know emotionally 
great for me as a black person, but I read some because I want to be educated and well aware. So I didn't really need to watch the convention, the Republican convention to know what they were spewing and what was going on. Um, I looked at the highlights, but I just, I, to me, it didn't change what I knew about what was going on, but I felt like seeing a lot of things, a lot of, um, a lot of fear mongering and, and things like that. And watching people start to get frustrated on social media about, well, gosh, I can't believe he said these things. I can't believe he lied. I can't, there's nothing that is left to surprise me at this point. <laughs> so my perspective on it is um, maybe it's becoming a little cynical, but I just feel like anybody who is a supporter of um, Trump is going to be a supporter of Trump, regardless of what Joe Biden says or Kamala Harris says. Um, I don't think that swing voters are a thing in this era because you, if you don't have the judgment to be able to tell between, you know, a sociopathic xenophobe and somebody who is at least acknowledging that systemic racism exists. And if you can't tell the difference between those two things, it, it, you're not going to figure that out by November. Um, that takes a depth of, of judgment and knowledge that you just don't have. Um, and it's not to say that I've written people off, but I've kind of chosen to understand where things are futile and where they're not. Mm -hmm. My focus, I feel, is making sure that people who say that they acknowledge they're at least past square one, because a lot of the GOP isn't even past square one, which is acknowledging systemic racism exists. Right. You can't even get past that. We, we can't even have a, a real conversation. So people who aren't even past that point, that's a separate help group that I'm not giving the emotional labor toward. But the people who, um, who do at least acknowledge systemic racism exists, acknowledge that our country is literally, that that is baked into the cake of our country um, and want to do something about it. You know, I, I do have a lot of conversations with people about that. And I encourage people to just stay educated on what's going on and to realize that even people who are Democrats have pre prejudices and biases. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of racism, even within the Democratic Party. This is not like a perfect party versus an evil party. Um, there's just a, a problematic party versus a, I don't even know what the other one is called at this point, but, <laughs> but we, have our own, we have our own cleaning up to do um, and our own courage. I feel like there's a lack of political courage in this country. Um, amongst not just Republicans, but amongst people who claim to be better than that. Um, so that's kind of where I was looking at to see, um, you know, Joe Biden, you know, definitely there's no comparison between him and, and Trump. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful that um, Kamala Harris, you know, was picked. However, you know, I, this country still has a long way to go because we had how many exceptionally qualified candidates for the Democratic Party, including amazing women, highly qualified women, um, people who got it, people who didn't need, people who were younger, so they didn't need to have as much of the effects of living in a white supremacist community, you know, environment. They didn't need as much of that eradicated out of their system as Joe Biden sometimes falls into having to deal with. And we still as a society chose an old white man to lead us because America has still lied to itself and told itself that that's the only option we have after that not working for how many 
decades and still not having the will to try something new. So both sides of the aisle have a lot still to work on. Um, so I, I, I give credit, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that just feel like I don't want to be told to settle. Um, there's so much more that we could accomplish. Um, and I am not that patient when it comes to being told that progress is this slow thing. Progress is only slow because America is not ready for progress. Mm. Progress is only slow because people who are in power don't have the will to move faster. Um, we move real fast when we try to figure a lot of things out in this country. When we have, when we prioritize certain things, we figure it out real quick. Um, and so I just don't believe that, that lie. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but <laughs> mixed, no, lots of good information, lots of good information. When it comes to, um, but as physicians, it is our job to advocate. Um, we cannot say that we are trying to prevent harm from coming to patients and then go out and vote for policies that harm our patients. And I don't have a problem calling out that hypocrisy or that irony um, because it's, it doesn't make any sense to me, uh, you know, um, regardless of your party, you should be pushing for your party to be the best that it can be. Um, uh, so it's not just about how every doctor needs to be Democrat because there's flaws in the Democratic Party and every Democrat needs to be Republican because, you know, financially that makes more sense. It, it really, none of it makes sense. So um, as physicians, we need to do, we need to look and see, are we are we supporting things that make the vulnerable in our communities more vulnerable? Are we, you know, complaining that the patient didn't, you know, take their meds, but then voting for people who take away healthcare or saying, you know, you have a lot of anxiety, but then go in the voting booth and vote for, for policies that cut off, you know, access to mental health resources. What kind of doctor are we then when we're doing that? And every one of us has to reconcile with that for ourselves. I think, um, you know, a few things to pick up on a few things that you mentioned, you know, because we are in this um, 2020 COVID-19 pandemic era, um, I think we've all noted that it has, you know, opened the doors, the eyes, the windows of lots of our shortcomings as a country. Um, it's allowed us to see a lot of the true colors and, and how people really stand on humanity and empathy and other things like that when we really talk about how something like this impacts the most vulnerable communities. And, um, and so I think that has, had, has led to lots of more conversations than we would normally have around these topics. The other um, is that, you know, because people are at home and, and watching and listening, um, and we're, we have access to, to media, social media, and just media in general, we're seeing a lot of things in real time. And I think, you know, to your point, um, at, as physicians, it's, at the end of the day, you know, most of us, we can't say all of us, there are always a few bad apples in every bunch, but most of us are always advocating for our patients um, in, in real time in, in the clinical space. But I think, you know, this shows us that it's increasingly important to advocate for our patients outside of that space, to have these tough conversations like you're having at the Board of Education, like, like you have at home with your other family members, like you may have, you know, in your financial space or your, you know, hobby space or whatever, so that we can figure out uh, 
who are when we when we do go to the polls when we do support candidates on every level at the local level for the the, the school board superintendent for your alderman or council person governor on up the ranks that we are picking people that um, are going to be supportive and make policies that are going to help the most people in the most beneficial way and i think the other thing that's really important from what you said is that you talk about things can happen quickly and that's another thing COVID taught us well we had to do something we didn't have a choice we figured it out real quick um, and a lot of great uh, ingenuity and innovation has come out of the past few months when we had to figure out how to how to do things differently. So it shows us we have the capacity. We just have to, to harness that energy and use it in, in a good way. I think in the, the other thing, you know, because we've, like I said, been at home and been um, around more media, things like the increasing well, we can't say increasing, the appearance, um, violence against Black people in this country and especially Black men um, being you know, shot by the police. I think of, uh, the other kind of interesting things, if you will, that happened over the past few weeks is the shooting of, of Jacob Blake, right, in Wisconsin. Um, the protest on a national level by these sports um, organizations, the WNBA, the NBA, even baseball, hockey, and, you know, it, it's such an unprecedented support um, and actually boycotting with a purpose and boycotting with financial consequences, because that's usually the things that actually affect change. Um, and, these, and, and how people are responding to the protests. Um, and, and one of the things that I find frustrating is now we are equating protests to violence, right? Which is a change from earlier. Um, and something that I'm hearing a lot of, well, oh, the, the Black Lives Matter people are coming. We gotta be prepared for the riot. Protest does not equal violence. It does not equal rioting. Um, and and it, it, it's a frustrating change as I've heard um, recently. But my question for you is more so, um, you know, when we're having these these tough conversations, and like you said, you know, you have, you have to pick your battles, right? You can't have these tough conversations with everybody. Um, so those who are willing to engage and listen and understand, how do, how do, we, how do we approach those, those nuances of, of understanding what's going on, the context of what's going on, and the implications of the words that we use to describe what's going on? That was a lot, I know. No, <laughs> you know, um, over the last few months, I've had instances where people have approached me and asked me to. Um, so you remember, even with um, George Floyd's passing, it seemed like a, a large swath of America all of a sudden woke up and realized that racism was a thing. Um, and all of a sudden, we're asking any Black person they knew, what should we do? Um, yes. How can we help? Da, da, da. And I was very clear about saying that it's important to understand a few things. One is that you're not here to offer help to me as if the problem is mine. The problem is yours. The problem is um, the environment of white privilege and white supremacy that you benefit from. It is a disease of your community that you need to fix. Mm -hmm. 
we're dying from that disease, but it's your disease. And it's important for white people to take ownership of that concept first. They're not doing me any favors <laughs> because this is all of our civil rights leaders basically were fixing the soul of America. They were keeping us safe, but they were technically doing it by fixing the soul of fixing that that broken soul of America. So it's a problem that they have that that they need us to help them fix, not the other way around. The second thing I say is that I'm not here to spoon feed anybody. Mm. Um, you have to do the work. You have to. I mean, I've had people say, "Well, just you know, just just tell me one book to read." <laughs> It's like saying, I want to be a doctor tomorrow, so just tell me one book to read, and I'm good. I mean, how insulting would that feel if I went to our program directors at residency and be like, I want to know how to do this hysterectomy, <laughs> but you know, I just don't got the time. To, I, just, I just don't got the time to, to, to do all that stuff, so just tell me one little book or one YouTube video, and then let me work on your mother. Right. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and they're supposed to have a straight face with me telling them that. That's how it sounds. When we have people who claim to be allies who say, you say, well, here's a few things to get started. And they go, God, you know, can, can you just give me, give me the cliff notes, right? Give me the cliff notes, okay? Um, no, I, I don't have time for that. Um, and, and it took a while to get to that point because, you know, when you first, maybe a couple years ago, I was just so eager for anybody to finally get a clue that I spent the energy, spent the time, and then realized that that's not, that doesn't help you learn any better. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really emotional labor that black people do. We're still emotionally laboring to survive outside amongst people who are disrespecting us on a regular basis. We don't have that kind of labor to be giving for free. So people need to show that they are committed enough by opening some books and really getting into it and learning about the reality because when I've had conversations with people around the George Floyd time, I've had some people that I've, you know, blocked who were trying to tell me that, you know, we, you need to come to the table and help the police with, you know, yada, yada. And I said, do you tell rapists to get in a room and sit down with their rape, with the rape, I mean, rape victims and say, you need to help the rapists figure out how not to rape people. Do you tell people who are battered women to go in and sit down and tell the, all the men who abuse women how to not abuse women anymore? No, you send them to their own thing and you get them the anger management treatment that they need and you, you, get, you don't involve the victims. And it's only with, with racism and, and, and the systemic racism and police brutality are black people asked and it's demanded of us to come to the table and kumbaya and hold hands and sit down with the people who are terrorizing us literally terrorizing us on a regular basis that is a reflection of the fact that we haven't gotten to the point where our humanity is truly um acknowledged and 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 um honored so i don't participate in things that dehumanize me um and so when it comes to the language of speaking it's not about keeping everybody comfortable mm -hmm. um Whenever we value more the comfort level of the people who are doing the oppressing than we are about the people who are being oppressed, we are already doomed. Um, we've already established that we're actually not ready for that conversation. Um, there's a lot of soul fixing that has to happen before certain conversations can happen. 
um, you know, fragility needs to get taken down a notch. Knowledge needs to increase. Uh, empathy needs to increase. Um, selflessness needs to decrease for us to have the conversation. So sometimes, you know, it depends on who I'm talking to. If I, if I know I'm talking to somebody who genuinely has done some of the work and is actually ready for candid conversation, it's not about being rude to people. It's not about being disrespectful to people. It's not about being condescending to people, but it's not my responsibility to make sure that you don't feel those things when I'm talking to you per se, because sometimes you're feeling those things, not because I've said anything in any way that is inappropriate. It's because your own insecurities are being triggered and that's for you to work on, not for me to work on. Um, so I don't take on people's um, insecurities. The word direct has always been used to describe me. <laughs> My patients say I'm very direct, but they usually say it in a good way. Um, they like when I call them out on their stuff. You know, Dr. Mills, you were right. I really shouldn't still be doing that. Um, but I feel like that's just the kindest way to be. You know, it's like having a friend with food in their teeth and you're staring at them and you are supposed to be their best friend and you're not even respectful enough of them or kind enough to them to hurt their feelings for two seconds to save them from embarrassment for the whole day. Um, and if people just think of it like that, then they won't have as much problems with just stating things as they are. The truth isn't good or bad. It just is. Yeah. It just is. Um, and I've had people who say, you know, you know, we just want to, you know, we don't want to sound too negative. Well, if the truth happens to be negative, then maybe instead of worrying about sounding negative, you work toward changing the truth so that you're not, next time you talk about the truth about a situation, it's not a negative thing. That's how you fix it, not by not talking about it. So, um, having that courage to just have necessary conversations um, and making sure that when you start to think, okay, how should I you know, change my voice or my verbiage? Remember whose, whose comfort should be more important to you in the, in the whole talk. Should it be the LGBTQ child who you know, is thinking of committing suicide or should it be the, the teacher that you know, didn't wanna to be told that she was saying harmful things? It needs to be the child's voice that is more important to you, the child's discomfort or comfort that's more important to you in that conversation. And that'll help you prioritize how you have those conversations. But the problem I've seen is that we still um, prioritize white wealthy voices over white wealthy heterosexual voices over everything else. And so when we don't Put those priorities where they need to be we don't make any progress we don't we don't talk about the elephant in the room and nothing gets accomplished and you know it's interesting thinking about you know I, I, i've said this a couple of times and that for me these past few months even but maybe over the past couple of years the fact that i can say the word racism in mixed company is new for me right mm -hmm. um and when you grow up socialized as a part of an oppressed class, which is what we are, we are often taught to make white people feel comfortable. You know, you, you don't yep. necessarily, sometimes it's directly said, I mean, I've had to, but because you have, and because we are the oppressed class, I mean, sometimes you have to make those decisions about how you're gonna operate in that space as a minority. How are you gonna keep your job? How are you gonna keep your children safe? How are you gonna make sure that, you know, your parents have access to 
food and shelter, depending on where you come from. And so trying to relearn how to empower ourselves and each other. Um, and still, I mean, we still, not much has changed. I mean, we still have to worry about all of those things, but the power dynamic has not shifted that much. But I do think the conversations are being had more and more in mixed company. And there are people who are at least willing to be allies and have the conversations. And to your point, change will happen more when those allies talk to other allies. They can talk to us all, the, all that they want, but we have to talk to the people who have the, or who are in the power and have the positions to make the change. And so hopefully we will evolve there soon. Um, and you know, we, we, are, we are winding up, but I think, um, I know I can't close this particular episode without talking about one more current event, which is the recent passing of Chadwick Boseman. Um, and you know, it's it to me, it's still startling. Like I I responded emotionally, like I knew this man, you know, and many of us did, you know. I mean, I, my eyes are welling up right now. I know. About it. I, it's, just, it's 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 heartbreaking, and I think for many reasons. I mean, probably some of us, you know, he's a man who looks like us similar in age, right? Um, he, but for like the country and, and globally, he just represented so much, but also came across as just a regular nice guy trying to do the right thing for as many people as possible. And that's what, we're, you know, most of us, what we're trying to do. I think we're just so relatable. And, you know, talking about health equity, he, he dies from a disease that we know is, more prevalent in, in the black community for again another conversation for another day on why that is but you know it's just like you know when you're out there doing everything right you know you have all that you have all the access to money to doctors the the inequities in this country still got you know what i mean that's just heartbreaking um so anyway i just felt like we had to acknowledge that um yes. give you you know opportunity to respond as well it's just yeah, trying to you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big, um, I'm not a big celebrity, put on a pedestal kind of person, but that's not what this is. Um, when Black Panther came out, or just even before it came out, when the previews were happening, um, it was kind of like when we keep seeing. People want black people to have this huge imagination that they don't have. Okay, so they understand that kids need to see a firefighter to know that they can be a firefighter. So they bring firefighters to the schools. Kids need to see doctors. So they bring doctors to the school. Kids need to see whatever. But they just assume that black kids are going to do this imagination gymnastics of you keep only bringing white people to see me, but I'm supposed to just assume that a black person can do it and that's not true we are asked to have imagination that the overall society literally can't have we have roles in media whenever you see a black person it's either on law and order in a lineup somebody who's doing drugs somebody who's a gang leader somebody who is just a sidekick somebody who's there for the comic relief somebody who um, doesn't have any depth of character or their own goals and hopes. I mean, there's a whole, that's a whole other discussion about 
media and, and portrayal of, of Black people, the different tropes in, in, in media, in, in movies. And then you have somebody who not only is strong, because we know Black people do have that trope of being just strong and aggressive, but you have strength, you have brilliance with Shuri, with Shuri, you have, you have excellence, you have elegance, you have class, you have, and even the uh, Michael B. Jordan's character of, because you know, for I think a lot of us, it was easily relatable both sides of that. Because you had a movie that actually was okay with saying things that need to be said. You know, um, black people in America do feel displaced. They do feel abandoned. They do feel like, um, you know, who nobody came back to come get us after we were kid after we were stolen. Right. Um, what could we possibly have been? What what could we have possibly done? How, what could we have possibly accomplished when we didn't have to always use a piece of our brain for survival all the time? What what more could we have done when we have accomplished so much already? Those are deep concepts that came out of this movie. Um, and Chadwick Boseman, not just as a the the character, but in his own life with his history, you know, he he did a lot of things advocating for equity. Um, and for making sure people have access to vote and stuff like that and being from an HBCU and everything. There's just so much of him that, um, gonna get me emotional now, that, you know, a true hero, like a, not just a, oh, you know, you got in a costume and you beat up bad guys. There's so many depths to what he showed um, is possible if we were just allowed to just thrive. And right now in the last four years, it's been very hard for me personally, as an immigrant to this country, to um, feel like black people in this country have ever known what it means to actually thrive. We just survive, we just survive and we excel, but we excel at the cost of a lot of our spirit. And it was really good to see people just excelling regardless and not having to excel because of anything, not, not despite of, but just excelling. And I think that, you know, that's, I think why so many of us um, feel this deep loss because um, I don't think that they can just stick another black face and make another sequel. They, they're gonna have to um, go to the next route in the comic book series and maybe let his sister be because we can't. We have to. We have to encapsulate that. We we can't cheapen it with a substitute. But I think we're sad because we would have loved to see five more movies with him showing us that, letting us just feel that feeling for two hours and or three hours um, that we still in 2020 have not truly been able to feel as a society. And I think that's what made it so so devastating. Um, and and on the whole thing of of health knowing that because, and I know it's a whole nother talk, but knowing that because of all of the um, horrific things that have been done to our bodies for generations, we are still dealing with that in the form of being more prone to certain illnesses that take us from this world sooner than others. Um, as an equity advocate, it upsets me, it infuriates me because it, is just another thing of trying to get people to understand that racism is not about hurt feelings. Yes, it hurts our feelings, but it kills us. Racism is killing us um, in so many insidious forms. 
um, and 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 I think that made it harder to watch too, because it was once again that coming up of the generational effects of all the other things that are happening, um, taking out um, somebody that you know is around our age. So, um, so yeah, it was definitely it's definitely been an emotional week. Um, and you know, it's not just about him being a celebrity. It's really, and I know a lot of his co-stars co attest to just his grace off camera, his always being prepared, his always, but it's, it's like when us as black professionals, we know what they mean when they say those things, right? When you talked about always having to be on, on point, always have to be on top, always having to keep people comfortable. I mean, I tell certain people the story about, you know, my brother who tell, told me years ago, that um, sometimes his face hurts when he gets home from work because he always has to smile. Yeah. He always has to smile because you can't make white people uncomfortable. Um, and what is that doing to us psychologically? What is that doing to us, to our spirit? Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's so all interrelated, the, the going back to our humanity and our ability to, um, I want to do more than just survive in this world. I, I want us to thrive and to really thrive without 10 pounds of weight on our backs all the time. That, that's what I want for us collectively. And hopefully, I, um, I mean, kind of pulling in something that you said earlier in the conversation about being growing up and, and striving to do well and not having um, then you talked about not having somebody to see, you know, you have to see it to believe it, right? Um, but trying to figure it out because we have somebody in our corner saying, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Um, and then it, it's still that going, you every day you feel like you're putting on a performance though, because you're the only one. And and that weight of representing everybody, right, is, is heavier. And you do come home and you're tired from that. You feel that weight. Um, and you, you brought up that Chadwick went to an HBCU. And for me, when I went to Xavier, that was the first time I felt like I could walk around and just be me. And that we were all there, all trying to be great together. Um, and we all tried our best to help each other. And I didn't, and my face didn't hurt because I, if I didn't feel like smiling, nobody thought I was anything else but Mary, that I could just be Mary. I didn't have to carry around that weight. And that was such a freeing experience. Um, and, and something I, I didn't truly appreciate in the, tr in the full um, context until I left <laughs> yeah. and, and went to another majority institution. And, and, and it was, I was so grateful to have that experience. But and I, um, I'm grateful for being in, for getting to grow up in Trinidad for 10 years because it, you know, my younger siblings don't have as much of a memory of the place. Um, my youngest sibling was 10, was only like a year old, you know, she's about 10 years younger than me when we left. And, but, you know, just walking around where everybody looks like you, I mean, Trinidad is very cosmopolitan. We have a lot of different races, a lot of Persian, Indian, Chinese, I mean, everything, but your prime minister is black, your doctors are black or Asian, your everything, your dentist is black, your, I mean, everybody is, is what you are. And you get to just be, I got to just be me for 10, almost 11 years. And then, you know, you come to America and it's like everything now gets filtered through this race prism, everything. You can't, you can't not get the 
the solo in the choir without thinking, is it because I'm black? And it's not because you were this paranoid person because you didn't even know that that was a thing, but it was like this innate understanding that something, some external force was out to get you every single day. Um, and that's just, you know, that's a level of trauma that I don't think, I mean, there a lot of psychologists are unpacking it now. I mean, there's books like, you know, post-traumatic slave syndrome and stuff like that that are really trying to address it. Um, you know, the miseducation of the, the Negro uh, written many years ago. But, you know, that, that kind of, you know, messing with your mind, um, I feel like maybe that's also why I've been able to just kind of call things out is because I, I know differently. I've, I was able to experience differently. I feel like sometimes um, black people who grew up here, they kind of just accept that that's the reality. Um, and, you know, you just got to do what you got to do, get by and, you know, things will, and, and in my head, I'm like, there, no, that's not actually, you don't have to actually do that. There are other options um, for you. Um, and I know that just even those few formative years of getting to experience that um, really helped me, gave me a clarity that um, I think I use now when I speak to people that it, it can be different, it, it can be better. Um, not everywhere, you know, is ingrained in the, the concept of our inferiority. Um, and we can make America like that if we want to. Uh, you know, we just have to have the will. Well, I've kept you much longer than I should have, um, but it's been a lovely conversation. Um, and I usually like to end on something optimistic because these conversations, of course, by the nature of them, get a little heavy. So, what are you? Uh, what are you looking forward to, or what are you hopeful uh, for? Um, you know that we will move toward after all of the, the emotional stress and trauma and everything else that we've been going through the last few months? Um, one, trying to be a glass half full person, because I'm actually, I don't think I am a glass half full person. I, just, <laughs> I honestly don't think that's my nature. Honestly, I think I'm a worrier all the time. But I thought of something during the Kamala Harris announcement that I feel like is a positive. Um, we know, unfortunately, that for Black people to finally get at the table, a white person had to get their foot out of the way. We just know that that's how it has to work. And I'm going to give credit to Joe Biden and those around him because I've been yelling and screaming for months that the Democratic Party has to understand that we have not elected a president for the Democratic Party with a white majority of voters for decades now. Mm -hmm. So stop pandering to them and take care of the people who are bringing, making, putting you in those positions. So I gotta give credit where credit's due. My mom always says, the Trinidadian saying, give Jack his jacket. I don't even know what it is. But you know, <laughs> give credit where credit's due. I don't know if it's Bajan or Trinidadian, but she has weird, it's probably Bajan because it sounds weird. Bajan's James thing. But you know, give credit where credit's due is how I translate that. That he could have chosen to still say, no, what we need is a white person so that we could hopefully get white people to like me. And they made a conscious decision to finally stop saying, oh, black women have gotten us where we are, but actually put a black person in a position where decisions can be made. Um, and that is actually a testament to some of the psyche of, a, of our, our community. That, that gives me a little bit of hope to know that there might be a little bit of political courage and will 
to stop catering. Remember wh whose voice is more important? To start actually listening to the voices of, you know, people of color who are saying we need a place at the table, not just like, you know, window dressing and, you know, make us think that we're important and then you forget about us after you get elected. Like we need an actual place at the table. And I'm glad that um, that was listened to and honored by appointing a very qualified black person to the position. As many reservations people have about if she's progressive enough or what and what was her history. The fact is she is a hundred billion zillion times more qualified than Trump is to chew gum furthermore anything else. So, you know, we're still in good hands. We're still moving forward. Um, and I will take that hopefully as an indication that maybe our nation is moving in a good direction because my concern really isn't as much Trump, it's all of the people that make up the society that have made him able to continue to do what he does and be where he is right now. Um, that whole soul of America thing is where I've always been kind of worried about. And so I hope that that is a little indication that maybe, like you said, conversations that we couldn't have a few years ago, we really couldn't have a few years ago without you know huge repercussions, we're able to have them now. So I'm gonna hold on to that with a, with a you know, hope that that means that maybe some of us are actually ready to be better. Um, and that's the first step that needs to happen. Definitely. Um, and with that, I will also, before we actually close, encourage everybody to vote. Um, exercise your option to vote, whoever you vote for. We are not advocating you vote for anybody. Particularly, we are advocating that you vote, period. Um, vote. And you vote in the best interest of the needs of yourself and your family. Um, but with that, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us. Um, please take care until I see you again. Yes, thank you for having me.